0: So delighted to be joined on the Friends in Football podcast by the great Graeme Hunter. Graeme, how the hell are you getting on?
1: Well, I don't recognise myself. <laughs> and uh, I don't mind this little test about whether I've got any friends or, or in love about football, but it's good to be here.
0: On your bio, Graeme, uh, you sort of drop in around 1982. Scotland are in the World Cup, <laughs> and this is where your love affair with Spain and all things Spanish football kind of begins, I guess. Yeah, it's
1: true. I can, I can be clearer than that. It's where my sort of love affair with adventure began. Um, growing up in Aberdeen um, had been just the same as anybody's normal childhood. And then this fellow, Alex Ferguson, arrives. And I'd been following Aberdeen, which is, you know, a, a vital theme for me. It's something that, as old as I am now, and the fact that I've lived outside the city for longer than I ever lived there, mm-hmm. the fact that I'm in a different country, um, I find my myself. is something about my self-identity wrapped up in how 11 sort of professional footballers who don't really, most of whom don't really care about the badge, perform every weekend. It's still a fundamental force in whether I feel good about the world or not. Not just how the dandies are playing or the most recent result, but are they doing stupid things? Are they keeping the players correctly? You know, Does the pitch look flat enough or not? Things like that literally affect my sense of self-worth. So back then, if you can take that level of stupidity, that natural lava of, idiotness and you apply Alex Ferguson to it it was it was a a cattle prod showing me that my club could play differently could be bullish and aggressive and ambitious and I often use the phrase about shrinking the horizons the world seemed smaller you could go and do things it wasn't far away and outlandish to think I want to do that Mm. and so therefore it wasn't simply about watching my team winning it, everything that I watched over the months and months and months said something to me. You know, be ambitious, be aggressive, be relentless. You you can do things. And in the 1981, um, it's every football journalist basically spawned this way. I was wielding a broom in my uncle's newsagents, right. just mopping away and um, singing along to Soft Cell. Um, and it was like tainted love, which was a big fan of because of the Gloria Jones version before and then this one came out and right. I've got a beautiful beautiful singing voice and anyways, a someone, a I've heard a laughing in the background and I don't appreciate <laughs> that Michael Michael yeah
2: Gavin we've uh we've um walked around Dublin in the past uh looking for a karaoke <laughs> late at night I, I never realised before that in my home city there was, there was such a shocking lack of karaoke in this <laughs> oh, The dearth of karaoke in Dublin. Mick, and Mick, is Mick
1: I can tell you from pounding the streets that applies to every European city apart from Barcelona. <laughs> but, disgraceful. But in all seriousness, I'm, I'm literally mopping the floor in my grave sort of smock jacket that, you know, janitors get. Sure. And uh, I'm going to the World Cup. That The thought just came into my head. So was it like an epiphany I'm go- it was. It was at least that. Right. It was probably bigger than that, more religious than religious. And I just decided, under no circumstances, is anything stopping me. And I phoned a couple of mates, and two of the first two went, no, it's that's Spain, man. That's far away, it's expensive, it's dangerous, I don't think my mum will let me. Mm. And I phoned my best mate, and he was like, yeah, that's a good idea. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so that's how daft he is. Sure. So we went, and we got help. For, you know, it was the, the Falklands War had been on. Yeah. People don't remember now, but the British government issued a sort of edict to British fans, don't go to the World Cup because Spain is kind of on the side of the Argentinians and there's cross-fertilisation. If they lost people, it would be more violent, would be more danger, don't go. My parents were like, I'd never been abroad before. I was only 17 at the time. I didn't have much money on my own at all. And it, it was an improbable project. Now, everybody in these days now of, you know, low-cost airlines, we all think that, and we listen to this going, that clown, anybody can do that. I don't think it was exactly the same at the time. And it was it it was a, it was literally a Hemingway-style journey from Aberdeen Railway Station down through the badlands of Stunhaven to Stunhaven, which is, you know, a desperate place. Almost unspeakable. So about there. seven minutes outside Aberdeen, and we just <laughs> whistled right through it. But all the way down to London with adventures like you never... I mean, one of our train carriages was attacked by the BNP National Front, and the poor old Asian conductor was chased through the train. And we tried to intervene, and... We got the you know the ferry across and we go uh, Paris, Madrid and on the on the, pa- the Paris Madrid journey, which was about twenty four hours, there were <clears throat> young Spanish women, there were uh, Moroccan soldiers with big blocks of hash. There was Eau de Feu, my first ever experience of sort of home distilled pure alcohol. Yeah. There was there was, you know, again, I got arrested at gunpoint just in the Basque country. Yeah. And so you said you mentioned eighty two in the World Cup in the Love of Spain. What it really was was an eruption of my love of doing daft things in search of mischief, and the byproduct was going to a world. It was a shock to me, uh, Gav. And this isn't a pre-planned monologue. I'm sorry it's so long, but a couple of years ago, and I can't do my arithmetic, but there was an anniversary. So it was 1982 to let's say it was the would it be the 35th anniversary or what was a recent anniversary? It's 1982 to now, maybe thirty years. So say say it was yeah. 30 years anniversary, and the papers did a retrospective, the Spanish yeah. papers, and they, they painted this picture of, it was, the, the Spanish word is despilote, a, a complete shambles where teams didn't know where they were living and hotels weren't built and trains didn't run on time. And I was like, well, that bears no relationship <laughs> to the, okay, we had some incidents to this Guardia Civil and the police, but apart from that, it was the perfect experience. We travelled around the country on an interrail. Um, we met sort of Interesting people. Um, <laughs> Smirk a a, a drug either. smuggler tried to employ me to work on his boat. We met some. We met a Danish female table tennis champion. That was ping pong. And uh, listen, the whole experience. <laughs> sorry, and the football, um, the passion for football. The because I wasn't going to league games, obviously. But you look at the stadiums, and they are slightly different. The temperature, but then the noise of the coffee machines or the the old guys with beers pouring over the newspapers during that World Cup and arguing about sport in bars or on the seats in the local plaza as as we experienced that World Cup. That was the thing that inseminated uh, uh, Spain and football go well together for me. And and I always yearn to go back and experience it. And that, that's how this whole mad adventure began. And I mean, it's fascinating
0: that you yearn to, to go back and sort of re-experience it, whereas... It took you sort of 20 years to get back there and live there but obviously yeah. so much happened in between including this golden age for aberdeen i mean mm. if you were talking about being inspired by aberdeen as a child to go out and do things i mean they went out and they did things and won four cups in five years a League, what was it the first league title in uh, not since 55 and rangers in, in 15 well
1: our first title since 1955 sure um which is a hell of a long time I and mean, we'd been a club who i wasn't alive then but you know we we were one of those clubs that was prevented from going into the the first ever european cup and I think Hibbs took her place and I think Hibbs made the semi-final that year or something daft like that. Fact checkers, I may be wrong by a round, but I, I think it was, you know, pretty damn close. Maybe even they got beat by Stad Ream. At any rate, that should have been the dandies. And yeah, there are several things. And I speak to the, the players of that era now, whether it's McMaster or Strachan or McLeish or Willie Miller. And they'll often t- tell me about their feeling of... of knowing they were going to win a trophy every season, knowing that they could beat Rangers or Celtic home or away, knowing that they would... that Hamden was ours. Now, you know, we're in a sad situation now where it's a rarity that we beat them. Mm. It's a rarity that we win a cup. And the last cup we won was, you know, clinging on by the nails to beat Inverness Caledonian on penalties. So... At that stage, it was as heady as it gets. I don't care if you're a Real Madrid fan or a Liverpool fan from the 70s and 80s. This, it's the same intoxication, that same... And also, is isn't an arrogance, a complacency of, we've always won, we're a big club. This was like, oh, look what's happened. And also, you could see the joins. You could see why we were beating everybody in terms of the manager and his perspective and his attitudes the quality of the players, also their confidence and aggression. But if you, I'll stop soon because people who are listening to this won't have experienced Peter Weir very much. And Strachan on the other wing is the one who's gone on to be famous because he won the title with Leeds and he was a fabulous footballer. I think he was named one of the players of the tournament in the World Cup in 86. But Peter Weir was um, of that old school of wingers who on certain nights you couldn't play. You literally couldn't he couldn't, it's like trying to, you know, catch a, a wet salmon and, you know, juggle with it, it was like, it was unbelievable and he would turn players inside out but he was also um, effective he'd use the ball really, really well, and Alec Ferguson said then that he was the player, so it, you could you could name right now, you were naming our stats but you could name Leighton, Miller, McLeish you could probably name McGee and Strachan for sure, maybe a couple of others, Eric Black did well and he's down in the Premier League now, but people don't mentioned Peter Weaver. Alex Ferguson said he was our extra dimension, he was the guy who lifted us into the European dimension so that we could take on Bayern Munich and beat them, or take on Real Madrid and beat them so if you throw in beating Rangers and Celtic which for us, as a city, as a fan base, again was was big for our self-identity and then you bring the European greats to Stupitoli who'd been coming regularly you know, Capello played there and uh, Blumen, Jupp Heinkes played there um, Anastasia, Betiga. We, you know, g- great footballers. brightener played there. Beckenbauer played there against us. Um, Spurs at their finest. Liverpool, that our first European Cup. That, that Liverpool side came up and and strangled the game. Absolutely brutally strangled the game. And yet now suddenly we w- we could take on anybody. We could take on Bayern Munich and beat them. We could beat Real Madrid away from home in a, in a neutral venue. Hamburg were the European champions. We could beat them. That that's that goes beyond like um, wasn't Alex Ferguson good? There was a fusion of of certain things at the same time, several things at the same time, and it was just it was unbelievable to experience, and, what, and it, it changed me as a person.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask that. Like people know you from covering Spanish football and Sky Sports, or they might listen to the Big Interview podcast. But at that point, when Aberdeen are absolutely flying. What are you doing yourself? Because, I guess, you're working in Scotland. or I was a bum. Homework? I was a
1: bum. I was a bum. For for one of the years, um, because I went to the World Cup, I flunked out of law. I had the chance to continue as a law student. And I just thought, nah, this is pish. I, I don't give a... You know, it's rubbish. I'm surrounded by rich Quentin Tories who've come up from Surrey, and, you know, they're all pricks. So, basically, I, I chucked it. And um, I worked in a, a pine kitchen... Sort of warehouse, a really nice man, George Cowie, gave me a job as a quality controller. Now that that was that was a good choice because if anybody can control quality in pine kitchen workshops, it's it's <laughs> obviously me. So I was earning a couple of bucks. I was working with lads whose life was going to be in the shop floor, and um, I was able to go and spend that money on travelling away to to watch Aberdeen. And that was me then doing a year where I sort of dreamed a little bit and went, I, I want to go to Glasgow. Glasgow's where Gregory's girl is. And that's the only reason... Well, that and maybe sort of the postcard record scene and orange juice and all the images and the feeling that Glasgow's kind of New york Sure. So that's what was happening then. So the first influence of seeing... Um, you know, Alex Ferguson, a Glaswegian coming up and changing my club, was to tell you, well, let's go to Glasgow and go head on and see if I can take Glasgow. And, I mean, we're talking about, it's 2002, another World Cup year, where eventually
0: you moved to Spain. How does that move come about, and, and how long were you thinking about
1: it, obviously, having enjoyed 82 so much? So I'd been a journalist for a little while, and I'd enjoyed it, but I'd been both a part-time journalist for a long time, and um, then a full-time journalist, and a reasonably sort of rapid ascent to the extent that I was deputy editor of the sports section of the Daily Mail in London, having been in the game uh, not many, not well, not full time, not many years, and um, unfortunately the, the paper got taken over, the newspaper section got taken over by an idiot, a liar, and a cheat and a bully, so we fell out and he sacked me. And um, I'd been, <laughs> I'd been with the guys who I was out with last night in Clintarf at um, the Spurs Manchester United game a couple of months earlier. I don't know if you remember, it, Spurs fans, do you remember this? 3-0 up at half-time? Yeah, 5-3 United, three, mm, yeah. Mm, mm. And we did a right good weekend right. and my wife Louise said to me, she's the happiest I've seen you for a long time. I said, listen, I know what's coming down the line a couple of months, this guy's out for me. So at least I had the benefit of knowing sure. that the bad guy was going to win. And she said, listen, i tell you what, well, you've always wanted to go to Spain. Why don't we? and um, she did that for me because it wasn't her cup of tea at all and I said yeah I'd love to because over the years i would had the rich benefit of a sports editor who would sent me to interview Spanish coaches or watch Spanish games or to, to try and explain what was going on there so I had some experience of seeing Spanish football at work and I loved it even more and, and I say this over and over again but it's true if you're a sports journalist or broadcaster of any ilk you're going to be better at it if you understand it more And this myth that because you're adequate with, any of us are adequate with words and you enjoy football, that you're qualified to be a good football journalist, that's rubbish. You know, we we comment on managers and footballers continually needing to reinvent themselves and to learn and to understand new tactics or to train or to live differently. And effectively football journalists, you know, stay in the slipstream without, most of them without changing very much. You know, just turn up, See, say what you saw And think that makes you good enough And, and it's my humble opinion that, that, what, what attract, that we can learn more Football's our enemy at the moment Because they close the doors mm. They don't let us we, we all lament that there aren't enough Good quality interviews With current managers and players So that the punters can understand more <clears throat> About their personalities About the fact that they're not all Rich nincompoops They, they aren't But because it's closed off So imagine, that's the truth about training. You know, in Ireland and Britain, we take it as a fact that journalists shouldn't be allowed into training. Again, that's just total shite. It's rubbish. How does football expect us to be adequate, to to be more accurate, to understand more, to comment better when we're denied access to it? It's literally like, you know, do you want to run the Olympics with one leg? It's yeah. Just it's, and Spain at that stage gave access to training, so you could go and watch and learn, establish relationships, but also educate yourself. And I was well aware that you know I, I had <clears throat> a perspective that people seemed to like reading, but it, I, I absolutely knew it didn't make me you know good enough or better than the next man. And I wanted to learn in Spain. Give you that opportunity, and in some clubs it still does. You can you can turn up and watch training. The big clubs have changed, unfortunately. But the, what, what hasn't changed, what I hoped would be the case and has proved to be the case, is that they'll open the doors to you. So they'll talk to you if you're good enough. You know, I've got you know phone numbers of you know World Cup winners and Champions League winners, not because they think I'm clever, but because over the years in talking about football with them, I've proved that uh, I, I, I listen and learn, I suppose. And and that has to transmit to the people who are listening to this podcast or used to listen to Mick on the radio or listen to the big interview that we do or whatever. It, you're only a product of what you learn and can can apply. I was going to say regurgitate, but it should be better than that, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I think. But I mean,
0: the, the atmosphere in Spain and the sort of culture, it is more conducive, I guess, to making those connections. You sort of, I, I seem to remember you... Uh, possibly talking about it or writing about it uh, a couple of years ago where you're as you mentioned you're granted far more access than you would be in the UK but mm. as someone from the UK going over there how do you even establish how do you bridge that gap essentially
1: it's no different from from you know a, a good reporter from Ireland going over to you know working radio or television in, the, in England and trying to establish yourself in the Premier League apart from the language and the language if you want to live in a country is something that you have to learn anyway yeah. <clears throat> so let's take out the fact that initially when I landed there, you know th- no wonder they, they didn't want to speak to me because I couldn't communicate, but as I learned the Spanish, there's, there's no difference um, Do you ask the right questions do you if they speak to you off the record, do you betray them? Do you look for polemic ahead of interesting comment um are you worth trusting? <coughs> Excuse me the, for the frog in my throat. Um, I, I think that's, a, I think that's a, an essential basic of any kind of sports journalism, journalism in general, but we're talking about sports journalism mm-hmm. or um, sports broadcasting, sports description. Do you understand it? Can you win their respect? Will they tell you things? And can you transmit that either verbally or in written form? So I don't think... That although Spain is different as a football culture, you're right, and it's more open. It also appealed to me. I, I was, for example, I was sitting with I won't name him, but I was sitting with a, a leading one. Premier League um, <laughs> um, footballer yesterday, and we were talking about um, this 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 uh, cultural gap where a lot of people, I, I don't know about Ireland, but certainly in Britain, still think that the value in a game is if there's lots of incident. Mm. That it's like um, you know, pantomime compared to opera. And I've I've really polemicised that because, you know, there's a lot in between. But if you take that those as the polls, there's um there's something that I didn't know that um, that I had such an appetite for. So when I s when I've seen this recent school of Spanish football, which has not always been so, yeah. This elite stuff that the national team and Barcelona played, we got into discussion about Is it boring? Isn't it boring? And I got very aggressive and critical about people who describe that brand of football as boring. You know, it should should be taken away from football and have the licenses, TV licenses removed as well. You know, because they're just idiots. What was his opinion of it? No, he, no, listen, um, without involving him in my strongly worded, he's an appreciator of football played intelligently, possession of the ball. I'm telling you something, you know, because you've seen him play. Now what I'm, my my point is that it was. It's hard for me to understand that that we've allowed, in particular in the Premier League, the the understanding of what's good and bad. Those are t- tricksy words. We, we've we've abandoned a lot of intelligence. We've we've that that the, there's an overriding tone that everything needs to be fast and it needs to be hurly burly, and that the the quality lies in. You know, do, 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 do. I think it's Billy not very smart circus personally and you you watch this thing about like England managers time and time again <clears throat> or even some top English club managers saying well we didn't pass the ball well we couldn't pass to each other first time I heard that as a correspondent was in well, in 97 or 98, when Glenn Hoddle was the England manager and they did a bad result, he said, well, their we, passing was terrible, we couldn't pass to each other. Which for England, at least, is a repetitive theme. Yet when they see, when the people who uh, lament that, whether they be media or fans or players or coaches, and and never see England lifting trophies, when they see people passing, well, like, oh, look at that, man. How boring is that? He's controlled that ball. His body shape was perfect. He's pinged it back five metres, 35 metres, and they've done that 17th. Bloody hell. Can you see the causal connection between (laughs) hating football played intelligently and not being able to win trophies? Why is nobody else singing that song? So, in Spain, all I'm saying is I've been so ultra lucky to go at that time for for this school of football to explode, uh, particularly one club, but two or three around them and the national side and played in a way that I, I adore. And listen, Aberdeen under Ferguson, even with those high-quality players, didn't exactly play like Barcelona play playing now, but we kept the ball, we pressed the ball, the ball was precious, there wasn't any lumping it bad. Both Willie Miller and Alec McLeish could pass, did pass. and And therefore, it's a fluke that there's some sort of relationship between football i grew up enjoying and the, the best football i've seen since i moved to spain is a total fluke but it's what pleases me and maybe some people listening to the podcast will agree and other people listening i'm absolutely sure will be saying well i, I don't care I, I want penalties and red cards and lots of people running around and bumping into each other you know yeah, well, say, they're okay. mma fans probably well yeah. whatever uh,
2: Did, when you um say you're growing up in scotland No, I did. The heady days of Scottish football, you did. It's a truth. It it actually happened. No, but you know, you're talking, you got to every World Cup back then. You know, you go off to Spain when you're 17 because you just need to. Aberdeen, your team are in the best period of their history. That's as much of a football fan. You're right in your formative years. You're in your teenage, Mm -hmm. early 20s that's when that's gonna shape your life. You become a sport, you become a football journalist. You move to Spain and you're doing, you're like, you know, everyone listening here is living the dream and like, we know you are actually living the dream, right? Mm. But like, it's a different relationship you have with football when you're working in it than when you're this fan, when everything is going right, when you're growing up and stuff like that. Do you feel the same about football now
1: as you did 30 years ago? More. Really? Really more. <clears throat> it's amazing. I, it, it constantly amazes me, and I'm also in a phase where, you know, I'm trying to be, you know, conscious of what is going on around me, rather than uh, not coasting, but just accepting that it's so. Listen, Mick, the way to explain it. I've I've started badly. there is I'm aware that the the golden that era is is fraying at the edges and will end. And I, I I think I was talking about this. You know, when Aberdeen's era ended, it was desperately painful when we weren't as good and when the manager wasn't Ferguson and when the great players grew old and that felt like a big sense of loss and I'm aware that there'll be I'm not a Barcelona supporter at all by any means I'm in love with the brand of football that I've seen and I know that there'll be a funereal sense of loss for me when I don't see it anymore and therefore I've I've tried to evaluate what I feel about what I've seen where I'll find uh, sustenance as as a journalist or as a writer of books or whatever, when when that's gone, and the big interview, for example, has has made me feel as as passionately in love with football as I ever was. Yeah. In a different way, because it's not my team and my colours and that warrior feeling of going to war with your troops every weekend, especially the away games and so on. Because what we've, what I've, what has given me what you're asking about. That, that adoration of football is the is the understanding of the sort of texture of the the, the wit, the disappointment, the the camaraderie. When people, when footballers tell you their stories, mm. and what it appears is that nothing changes in that this idea about being in a dressing room. Can I survive the daily tricks or wit or, or fallings out or when? when tactics change and trying to understand it players who talk to me about like for example talking to Geisker Mendieta and Michael Carrick about penalties in the big interview Geisker was a machine just scored and scored and scored and being a p- persistent bugger during the interview I wanted to know how he did it and during it he stopped himself and went Phew, looking back now how the bloody hell did I do it and that was the first time he'd had that thought and um Talking to Michael about the whole Manchester United experience of penalties in Moscow, which had transfixed me because, you know, you take two British teams, you take them to Moscow, which Roman Abramovich owns, it goes the way it goes. Frank's f- mum had died. He he scores the goal. You know, R- Ronaldo scores dropped a percent off. It goes to penalties. The penalties are. To me, it's not even all about John Terry slipping and falling over. It's like. It's something, it's like a Western, you know, when you get the ultimate, you know, shit-out scene and it's dropping with rain and it's Mm. miserable and you're like, you're almost frightened for these people. And and Michael talking me through that, the emotions of going up, what you feel when you see other people missing, what you've got to carry, who you think of or don't think of as you approach the ball. These are the things that make me, as just as daily joyful and and it's worth getting out of bed in the morning for football because of things like that. But I'm wired strangely and probably badly, but it's like I I feel more um, excitement and love of football now possibly even than I did then. Yeah. And just
2: like we've known each other for years, was it always football? So we talked about you kind of, um, you talked about like your early years there and what you were doing and then we kind of got to when you went to Spain, Mm.
1: becoming a journalist. Mm. Was it always football? No, no I've heard like, <coughs>
2: But even the aim, like, was it... Is that what um, I don't about?
1: know so much, no. If, I mean, if you could allow me three lives, you know, I'd spend one of them writing about rock and roll or, or perhaps dominating rock and roll. And, um, <laughs> you see, that wasn't a joke either. Um, the other one, um, cinema. So it could... Had you given me... And, you know, my first ever writing uh, the uni paper was about cinema. And I got published when, you know, I was writing about... I, mad old kids film and somebody was writing a big highfalutin piece about you know Polish cinema and I got published so I was like well that's quite good so no but also I'm um, within sport I've had again I don't know why it happens but huge fortune so for example for a little while I worked in with Jackie Stewart and in and around Paul Stewart Racing and I, you know, a few times I flew with him in his private jet and spent time talking to him because he I had to write speeches he was going to be given gi- giving and as you know he's dyslexic and therefore the process of trying to listen to him about how he could you know it it's it's odd maybe anybody who's listening who's dealt with blindness or deafness or dyslexia you you learn that uh, you just can't assume but at that stage I had words But I didn't know how you created words sufficiently for a dyslexic to give a brilliant speech. So he taught me what he needed. And I found that a brilliant experience. When I began to write for Tom English um, at the Sunday Times, um, Jackie was somebody who would take a phone call and help. And so I did a little bit of Formula One. I did rugby um, at a time when, um, again, people welcomed me. I was writing about Scotland rugby at a time when professionalism was just coming in. And, you know, here in Clontarf, I'd met, you know, my only game was with an all-black and two British Lions, Um, Clontarf against Black Rock, uh, with uh, Mark Ellis and the Leslie brothers. And therefore, little tiny flukes that when there was a rugby contract up, my first ever full-time work, I, I became a rugby reporter and grafted like hell, paddled like hell not to look like a mug. But kind of reported Which wasn't happening then Reported rugby like football mm. um, Issues and news stories And direct interviews Rather than analysis of you know Movement of the ball Or tactics Which I, I didn't have So I didn't try to do And NFL I, I had a pal Who ended up In the NFL um, Infrastructure somehow or other And I said to him I want to come and cover the, the Super Bowl No, no problem there's a ticket. Come on over. And I went You're still over. At home. And still <laughs> He's still working American football, actually. American soccer. Get now. him a ticket next year. yeah. Stevie, are you listening? Um, and again, this is important. It's not a frivolous thing. You, you probably, I'm certain you know this. Maybe given the years we know each other, I've told you. But at the end of the Super Bowl, which was a rout, Chargers got taken apart by 49ers. And you, you you walk into the dressing room to interview them. I was like, okay, how do I make the trip valuable for the paper that sent me? Because, you know, the game's been seen, so I've got to bring something else back. And I'm not an expert on NFL. Well, the way to do it is to go into dressing room and interview players. About 15 minutes after the final whistle, you know, compared to a sport where we're not allowed to watch some training, where if you get an interview, it's a privilege and we should, you know, we should genuflect, walk into the blooming, you know, male and female reporters, because they've got a right to. Are in this winning dressing room of the Super Bowl because they value proper communication, and their sponsors say this has to happen if you want our money. So they, these things help shape me. Is it, you
0: celebrated, or at least you were in the dressing room of Barcelona at some point uh, after the two It's different. Time. No, it's different. It's like? different
1: from that. Yeah. I um, the the thing with Barcelona was that at Wembley, I had to do a, an interview. Um, when they won in 2011 and we were there was a spare dressing when we were given the cup and but it was my task to make sure a player came in with me and t- t- you know Tiago was having a can of beer um, you couldn't interview a goal scorer you couldn't interview the man of the match um, Eric Abidal uh, said, came out and gave me a big hug And said, listen, I'm too emotional. And, and you know, he celebrated beating cancer for the second time by playing completely against his expectations and being told to lift the cup by the rest of the team. So that was okay. So what happened was I got very lucky in that both PK and Chavi knew me and trusted me and I said, listen, I I need you to cut. So they did. So we were sitting in, okay, the next door dressing room with the cup and doing a nice little one-on-one, two one-on-ones after the final, which felt good. But the, the real dressing room experience was the 2010 World Cup and the 2012 European Championships, where I did. I, the, the boss of the people that I was working for in the World Cup said, on the day before the finals, we were travelling from Potchefstroom to um, Sandton in, in Johannesburg. Oh, you've had a great tournament. We're so happy with it. And I should have heard the the menace, you know, the, the Jaws theme. You've done so... What we would like is, can you get yourself in the dressing room sure. if they win it and be on the bus to the airport with it? Like. <laughs> ah yeah right anyway it worked it worked it did work and they did allow me in and it was you know again I won't say I was intimidated but I had this deep deep sense of what the fuck am I doing here this is their this is the epitome of their lives they've they've striven for this they're elite athletes and I'm you know what the, you know you had too though no is it not the epitome of yours as well? I, I, have, I have, although I hide them well, I have lots of flaws and I shouldn't have been thinking like that at that time. I did my job and, and it's, I've, people have laughed at me before, but it helped a lot that Pedro wandered up and handed me a Budweiser and said, thanks for everything. Now, we kind of knew each other a little bit, but I, I, I did think that he'd mistaken me for Howard Webb, who gave them a couple of good decisions, but that <laughs> that relaxed me, I must admit. You know, but you know, Placido Domingo <laughs> comes in and sings, Rafa Nadal's there with a red and uh, gold Spanish scarf wrapped around his head, his face painted like an idiot, bawling his eyes out. I mean, just bawling his eyes out. And the players come in and celebrate a little bit, but I'm shocked that it's not mayhem. It's not, they don't go crazy. And within about five, six minutes of being in the Dressing them with the trophy, they're all doing this, and yeah. you know, t- t- texting or. But then little clusters of photos and um, elegant because it was a bad tempered final. Philip Cocu, who, who knew some of them from his Barcelona, just yeah. just came came across just to boys well done. So tiny things like that I think are important, and we filmed away and, and we enjoyed it a lot. Um, but it was a b- bizarre experience because you're in what should be just about the most high security place on the planet at that stage. Mandela is there, you know, Shakira, who must be protected, is there. Um, two, two of the greats. <laughs> two of the all time, <laughs> all time greats. What a voice Mandela's got. Uh, and, 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 yeah, and, and the, you know, the, the, the 24 or another, I can't even count, the 36 most valuable footballers on the planet at that stage. And there's, it's a real, you know, stadiums are all wildly different where the dressing rooms are. Sometimes they can be in, like, two different counties. But these ones, these dressing rooms were as far apart, maybe, as me to Neil and Martin there across your office. So it was very small. And the entrance to the Spain dressing rooms here, the entrance to the Dutch dressing rooms there, and this vestibule is maybe even tighter than this, and it's the place where, famously, Iker Casillas has been interviewed by his girlfriend, and then he kisses her, and she's, like, outraged, and all this kind of stuff's going on. In the middle of all this, all I can hear, is like, you know, coming from the distance, I wish I could do that. Who does that wee man in a box thing? Rob bryden If I, if you can imagine, <laughs> <laughs> sure. and fuck my old sea boots, if there isn't a phalanx of about eight scousers <laughs> marching down the the tunnel into the vestibule of the World Cup final. Um, frog march, spice of they Did somehow they got? You know, you hear stories about like <laughs> some mad guy gets in the team photo or somebody ends up in the dressing. Yeah. There's these mad scousers in Johannesburg who've just wormed their way into the World Cup final, been discovered, and then they're being frog marched out down the <laughs> tunnel of the World Cup final. And it, there was a bit brilliant because like, we're now coming back, and we're going to treat us like this. This is disgraceful. Call this hospitality. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought. Ah God, you put me on this planet just for that moment. It was it was just Billy Bonkers. Must have been surreal. Like it's like what like uh, I think was happening a short was, period Mick. of time to but, each other. But listen, without listen, you have me on this show so I'm not bullshitting you. That's my life. My life is completely surreal. I think sort of me and Keith Richards are just about the you know, the two weirdest dudes on the planet when you go like, How did that happen? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Another two of the greats.
0: <laughs> um, the differences between Spain and Barcelona Obviously you've written book, books about both Did you find, I mean telling those stories From like the World Cup Did you find Spain were more accessible Than you might find a club side in Spain Or what were the Yeah t- for for
1: for a variety of um, Interesting reasons Like for example at a World Cup um, I know that certain countries tr- Treat you like clubs do Like it's a no-go zone Spain were different I've, I was slightly privileged, and the people that I worked for sometimes let me fly with them or stay in the same hotel. So you'd kind of see them for a, a coffee or what. And listen, you'd you'd see them pissed too, because they're allowed. Some Spain players are allowed at certain instances to go out and just get wellied, and they do. They never get arrested. There's never paparazzi. Nobody ever misses the bus. They they, they treat it differently. But as a, yeah, yeah. a little prize, they're allowed every so often. They go and just they're, they're treated like men, right? They go. But the key thing is in under, in that regime at least we were allowed to see in the first two tournaments I did with Spain as a correspondent 95% of the training sessions including pre-match days when theoretically you might see a tactical nuance or a free kick routine or who's not going to make it because you shouldn't be and we were so I go back to what I said this was the epitome of of learning because we were literally watching every defensive organization every um, every incident where somebody was rushed off the hospital after a collision on the pitch or um, the rouse rouse when first of all in 2008 Luis Aragonés hauls Sergio Ramos out in front of the whole group and bollocks him goes through him you know humiliating enough for him that he that happened to him in front of his other players but you know we're all there too but also the, the key thing apart from learning is that the players see us doing the hours? So if if it's double sessions, which it usually was in 2008 and in 2010, you know I'm not asking anybody to you know break the hearts for us, but we'll be doing 20 hour days before we even get a drink. And if you because if you if you got training in the morning, you get there, you film it all, you go away, you cut it, you voice track it, you make sure it's sent. Ingesting is long and sometimes difficult. You have a maybe a sandwich, and you get back to you. You have to get back to training again for the second session. You do the all the whole thing again, and three four hours after the players have finished, and you, literally you have done maybe an eighteen, nineteen, twenty hour day, day after day, or for seven weeks if if, you, sure, if yeah. your team's going to win it. And the players go, ah, oh, look at them. They're doing our hours. They're there all the time. They're not this brand or. That group of people, they're not this brand of journalists who sit at home in the office or the hotel room and don't do the hours and then tell us how bad we are. And that wins you a little bit of respect, so, so long as you handle it well.
0: So the, opportunity, like, the fact that you can't really watch training in England is oh, I suppose a hindrance then
1: to journalists? No it's, no, the it's, no, it's fundamental. It's fundamentally wrong. And it's like, I—listen, maybe I'm being inarticulate. England, English teams, particularly English, England international team can't treat the ball well enough to win summer tournaments yet when they see another side club or internationals doing it many of the constituent parts of British football say well that's boring well, ok so go figure why you don't win things in football <clears throat> you know that although football I argue is peppered with likeable honourable, intelligent fun people people that I hold in huge regard as, as individuals. Yet football as a voice will say, oh, we hate modern journalism. We hate the way that, you know, they don't understand us, they criticise it, and yet they can't see the sort of causal connection between we're going to deny you the ability to learn, um, to adapt. T- we're going to deny you the ability to show us that you're trustworthy on a daily basis or even three times a week so that journalists could go and, and also... Let's say training was open. It's calling It's calling the, the British sports journalists' departments out. It, training's open. D- d- does the editor say, yeah, go? Go and watch? Or, "Nah, don't don't spend money on petrol and going all the way there and you're out of the office. Right? No, I just get it off the internet. Well, no, hold on a second. There's a chance to go there and be at the coalface, build relationships and learn which desks would send, which journalists would say, no, nah, I'm not going to training. Because I see that in... You know, Spain, too, and, ah, I'm not going to training. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, Go and report on chess. So all I'm saying is, it, let's say we could click a switch now and the Premier League was obliged to open its training sessions th- seven times a month, three times a week, I don't care. The the, the penalty would be occasionally on training grounds there are punch-ups or rows, sure. and that would become back page news. Or it maybe anyway, maybe it business. wouldn't. I think often it does, but I think you'd be surprised about how much they get away with. So,
2: look, the way I'd look at this, though, is, say, with politics, right, you know... The people in charge say in Trump's America, whatever they're yeah. going to do, whatever they can get away with, and they're looking yeah. for people to act a certain way so yeah. they can use it as an excuse to get into line. Yeah, you can't deny that the British press, or at least large parts of it, have given English football the excuse to do this by the way True. they've written about. Like Graham Taylor died last month, and everybody's watched the documentary again, and the way he was treated by the British press was disgraceful. And it's not as if that oh everybody like suddenly all those journalists have gone away and it's 20 years later and everybody treats footballers and football managers with ultimate respect. You know, there is, like, you do understand to a certain extent why they say, what's the point? Why do we need to give these guys anything?
1: No, your basic point's absolutely right. I think over the, I'm not, you know I'm not saying, you know, the the British Sporting Press is is like Camelot and and it's the round table and they're all bold knights. I'm not saying that. What I would argue, and, and, and you're right, that we do see decent people treated in indecent ways on back pages i agree with that fundamentally i would argue to you that the british training grounds weren't closed because of tabloid excesses they began to be closed because clubs became corporate entities who are who are like the more we you know become hermetically sealed the more we have control Now I don't want to make the same comparison about Trump's America because you're dealing with you know an old time. But what my my point
2: point to that though was I think that it I think they want to do that anyway. I agree with you on it, but I'm saying that it gives the excuse. Yeah. You know, it's sort of yeah. I I agree. I agree. I agree. agree, But listen, if if
1: you're you're you're, if you you've got the kernel of your argument, you're talking about why the peace negotiations with Northern Ireland should never have happened. Well, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. Well, what do you do? You you risk. You reach out and you say. I'll tell you where we might find common thinking. That's that's at the centre of everything we've lived through in our lives, not sport. If you want to make something better, somebody needs to say, "I have an intelligent idea. It carries risk, but I know what I want to achieve, and I'm going to do it." So if you're if you're you know to extrapolate from what you're saying, if it were opened up, the, the same maybe editors rather than journalists who who. Bobby Robson's an example, Graham Taylor's an example, who who pilloried and humiliated. Yeah, there is there would be a risk. But net gain in terms of what football doesn't like, which is we don't know who you are. We we you know, we no longer know the names of the people we we can't we don't know if we can trust you. Your reporting of that is unbelievable. <laughs> why did I only get 4 out of 10 instead of a 7 out of 10? <laughs> or why don't you understand the difference between 352 and, you know, one or If you accumulate all the various things you've read or heard or interviewed, the football establishment saying we don't like about the media, there is a partial cure in educating them and allowing them access via which they don't just look for sensation, they look to build relationships and understand the game better, is my argument.
0: I mean, okay. one of the one of the ways we we learn about modern football at the moment is, of course, listening to the big interview, uh, which stars Graham and various fascinating guests. Uh, we'll touch on that a little bit with uh, Martin Gray of Backpage Football. Uh, Graham, it was Martin and Neil who yep, correct, yeah. Who, they sort of they dusted you yeah, it's off, yes, Cinderella say. story, man, yeah.
1: <laughs> so I was a used, tired, washed-out old hack, and said, "I know what we can do with you."
0: Excellent. Well, we'll uh, we'll chat to Martin now. Why? Why not? Why, Why not? not? Yeah, and this is the uh, friends kind of in football decides, okay, podcast. You've sort of been the nominated friend from from Graham. So, <laughs> what you, Graham, you mentioned before that he 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 and uh, and Neil was a, a, like sort of dusted you off. What did, what did you mean by that?
1: Sort of discovered you, like? Uh, look, yeah, no, no, definitely. I, the, what, they, what Martin will tell you more adequately, given that I've been chunting ch- 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 on, was that you know I don't have terrifically good vision. Neil and Martin are the, are, the, are the visionaries who say, "Here is an idea. We're going to mash it out." get it into a form that might be attractive to people and then we'll, we'll see if Graham's up for it and I'll be like, ah, what? And then they'll go, no, 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 just, just do It's like, do you ever remember when you, you ever saw a horse racing as a kid and you ask your dad, why are these horses in blinkers? You know, are they blind? They're going to run off the course. And he'll say to you, no, no, no. If you put a good racehorse that can run quite fast in blinkers, then it'll keep them focused on the job. Well, they're my blinkers. That you're you're a you're one blinker, I guess, then, Martin. Yeah, <laughs> well, just, just to kind Only of... Only when he's nervous. <laughs> <laughs>
3: slightly sketchy in the background, we started the company 2010. We had our first book out, um, which was called In Search of Alan Gozine, which um, did well, um, but kind of within its market. Yeah. Um, what we wanted to do at that point was to try and really explore the company, um, reach a much, much bigger market, get into foreign territories as well. Myself and Neil, uh, my business partner, um, we'd been watching this great Barcelona team emerge and it was, just, it was so obvious it was just like a moment in football history that, that had to be documented. I always think the, the sign of a great team is you can kind of name 1-11 to 11. and that was the case with Pep's team, you know, it was just uh, it was a joy to watch them every Saturday or Sunday night, it was such a buzz. So we thought, well let's try and get our teeth into that subject and... and the obvious choice, I'm not just saying that, because we're friends now, but um, was, was Graham? we'd been reading his stuff for years and we're well aware of him, and we're kind of mulling the idea over uh, ourselves, and then Neil read a piece that Graham wrote uh, on Xavi, which was kind of your case for, for Xavi to win the Ballon d'Or. I remember that, actually,
2: yeah. Yeah. Um, when the Mail had done the... Four the greatest, greatest players in the world, and Javi no, I was I group. was
1: writing, for, I was living in Barcelona, and there was the, the sports editor for the Sunday Herald, mm. um, phoned me up and said, um, a, a gigantic piece on Sam Torrance has fallen through. I've got about three spare pages, and there's no time. Can you? And it happened to be my ex-editor who'd not been able to come up with a piece that he promised. They phoned me. I was on a bus from Girona to Barcelona. He said, "Can you give us 1,200 words instantly?" I said, "Well, listen, Monday's the Ballon d'Or. Are you aware that he's not going to win it, and he should win it? And here's a case for it." And he was like, "Stop talking, write it." Mm. And I wrote it, and it felt like it was a bit hurried. And then you never know the you never know the ripples in the pond.
3: Yeah, I mean it was a great kind of backgrounder on Chavi. Uh, I remember you talking about he's his childhood and, and the little square that he played in and stuff and it just kinda put you um it put you there. Mm. Um and I remember Neil texting me, it was a Sunday morning and he said, have a have a read of this piece and um and I just like I just said like let's just let's just do this. Let's just contact Graham, see if he's up for it and and we'll have a run at it. So a few weeks later we met um in an Italian restaurant in Glasgow and, and we were Selling Graham the idea, if you like, and we did have so to the do Italian restaurant
1: it. in Glasgow, where one of the opening phrases we've had you checked out. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I think that, that was news. Like that sounds
3: like that sounds like him. Um, it was you, <laughs> but yeah, it was just uh, we we'd kind of did our sales pitch, um, and I mean, I think to be fair to to you, Graham, you you knew the 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 kind of value of the idea, but maybe. Um, the idea to kind of come and go I think you'd floated it.
1: um, No, I can be blunt. I thought that, I I I was not tired of telling the story. I thought everybody knew around Britain and Ireland. Everybody knew what I knew. Everybody knew everything that there was to to know. I thought that the penetration of the sports devouring market for this story was saturated.
3: I mean, I, I think the main point was that we felt there was a knowledge gap between what was happening in Spain And in the UK and Ireland, um, you got the games, you got the highlights, but you didn't get like the the behind the scenes narrative. Yeah, I was going to ask you that
0: because I, I guess, as you mentioned, having read Graham for so long. He's kind of the perfect candidate to get even the Chavi thing. You, you're talking about him playing as a child on the square. You get the background story and you learn about yeah. the
3: characters as well as the style of playing the athlete. Exactly. It was it's almost like uh, kind of camera eye reporting, you know, and and that was what we we loved and, and we felt there was a, a huge market for for that, particularly centered around this great team. Um, so I think we did have to do a bit of a sales job, and then a, a few weeks later, um, Graham's like, you know. Um, I, think, I still remember the subject of the email. It was, uh, birds do it, bees do it, uh, dot dot dot, and then he's like, let's let's do it, um, and and it was like, fantastic, <laughs> let's go for it, and um, an amazing experience. I mean, the book. Is now sold over fifty thousand copies it's been translated into 14 different languages and it kind of it gave us a an amazing platform um for the company yeah. i mean at that point um we had we chucked our jobs in, in sports journalism because we wanted to do something different but we were still um freelancing we were still doing sub-editing a bit of writing bits and pieces so we wanted to go full-time and publishing and that that you I mean, that was definitely our ambition so that gave us a great springboard to take the company full time, um, and then we just kind of kicked on from there.
1: There's a link, if I can not speak for Neil and Martin, but there's a link to what you know you do well, and, you know, Balls.ie and the the, the frenzy football pocket. If you tell a story well, then people will listen. And sometimes the stories can actually be better than the football because on any given Wednesday or Tuesday or Sunday, you might see a poor football match. And these two said to me and the phrase that sticks with me because I've forgotten a lot of what I said to them but I remember a lot of what they said to me was football's passion football is exciting and centuries old and it makes people, divides families and it gives you hope in life and football books are boring Yeah. so we're going to make it that the football books we're going to print books that reflect what football's like and I was like, you had me at hello Did you prefer- except they were Renny Zellweger and I was <laughs> Tom, you see, so, uh, that, was that also wasn't a joke. That was a given. Okay. though. What we have is a failure to oh No, that's that's Paul Newman, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Did Mark. you did you prefer writing one what of one book here here the What we have here is a failure to... <laughs> <laughs> Give me those boy eggs. Come on.
0: Um, writing the two books, Barcelona and Spain. Mm-hmm. Was there one that you preferred? One story
1: that yeah. you preferred more than the other? Yeah, by a million miles, the Spain one. Yeah. I found writing a book for the first time really, really hard for various different reasons I, um, and I'll be brief now because it's his section of the thing but you know when you're a newspaper man you, one of the addictive things is you come into a blank sheet of paper every day there's a challenge there that paper's just staring at you going come what have you got and I'm like don't worry tons but then it's gone you do it again you do it again and then who's addicted to anything recognises the pattern well books aren't like that and I'm so stupid that I didn't realise that so you've got to work for a long time and concentrate and coordinate things and build up stories and Man, it was tough. It was really tough. And then Spain was different. You know, I'd lived, I'd been, I'd been, I'd been so close to it that it was only a a, um, a case of working out how to tell a story, right. not not further developing the story. And Spain was more concertinaed, a shorter story, whereas Barcelona had to take in things from the fifties and sixties and seventies as well, and and also. I mean much though I like club football and Spain don't have Messi who's just the greatest footballer ever been by well I don't know about distance but I think great still in Pele in my view and leaves, leaves tambourine man here um, aside but you know I really liked the guys in the Spain era so much I knew them I'd seen their blood sweat and tears and I'd, I'd done the miles with them so writing that book was was easier. I mean, more people have read the Barca book than the Spain book for for sure. But I mean,
3: I think when we the three of us reflect back on it, myself, Graham, and Neil, um, I, I mean, I think we probably enjoyed the Spain experience more. I think the three of us were better at our jobs, and, yeah, and uh, yeah. the creative process worked better. And um, again, going back to that idea of the kind of camera eye, um, because Graham was so close to the camps, uh, and he was he was he was soaking up all this stuff. Uh, you got a real sense of being there. Um and I, I think you know the the process worked brilliantly for that book. I absolutely love the book. Um, I prefer it to to the Barca book actually and um although it's it's it doesn't have the kind of stellar uh kind of um style if you like of the, the, the Barca team and stuff like that, um I think it's 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 a stronger uh, offering, you know, and I would I would urge anyone not I mean not just because it's our book you know but I would I would urge anyone who's read the Barca book to go on and read the Spain book.
1: A little snippet the things that that make I think each of us feel, feel proud is that we, we've received a deluge of people saying I never read but I read this and I enjoyed it. My kids never read. I'm a teacher and none of the boys in my class ever want to read anything but I've given them this and they're reading. Um, We've had quite a deluge of messages from both people who read the books and people who listen to the Big Interview podcast saying that it's taken them through depression. You know, it's taken them away from the darkness of kind of th- their expression about not being able to go on.
0: Mm.
1: Now, I don't think that's really us. I think that's the power of the idea that they originally had that football is so important, so hypnotic, sport is so important, that they've managed to capture that, that, that you could take that essence out of the bottle and spread it around rather than ignoring that it's there. That's possibly for me um, the single biggest enjoyment I've had of, of that process.
3: I mean, just reflecting on those two books, th- I think one of the themes that, that probably I find more attractive than anything else is the fact that the, it's basically strategic and systematic that that's that's the key to those two mm. two books is how do you build for success and in a way it's it's on they're almost like kind of business strategy books you know it's like um how do you put something in place that's going to uh, yield over the medium to long term uh, and Barça lays that out you know straight from uh Cruyff coming in uh, all the way through and then there's some incredible stuff in the spain book about how they put things in place um you know, to have to to produce the, these golden generations i think that that's that's fascinating i think that's the the big takeaways uh, that people uh, in this country um ha- have got from it that that actually um the way that footballing success is approached in spain is much more systematic mm. than it is in strategic mm. than it is in the uk for sure
2: it's interesting to me that both of you preferred the spain book and i have to say i did as well mm. and but more people have read the Barcelona book and it's more popular. I think that says a lot about the Spain team and their legacy. Like They won three tournaments in a row, they're probably the greatest international team of all time, but it's like they're quickly forgotten. Isn't it? I know not I by think you, but I think, but you're I think fair. in general no, I, think I think it, think it is. Fair. Whereas I think we'll be talking about this Barca era.
1: For you, can, you can be quick here, we can all be quick here, and we can say Leo Messi. Like Messi yeah. Can't we? Yeah. yeah. You, know, you know that whatever your time investment is on any Leo Messi a game, there's a you know there's a lad Brooks better than even chance that you're going to come away going oh, I'm glad I watched that. Now, although I get sort of all um, shock talk about it and slagging people off for slagging off Spain's method of playing, I accept that you know it you know it takes all sorts you know um, and if people don't enjoy that, there isn't a Messi or there wasn't a Messi just to go pow in those days. It, it you know it fed me the the diet of football that I didn't just want to see that I, th- I thrived on so I, I I think it's really easy to break that down but I think also with Gab we were we were talking about style of publishing style of editing you know that Neil and Martin were involved in Mike the my writing whether i was you know more concise or we just invented a out of the blue for the spain thing we invented the i wrote it as a sort of literally as a sort of who did it recently Morrissey did his whole book as one chapter didn't oh, yeah, he yeah, yeah. well that's what spain started out as and then just before i handed it over i thought i'm gonna get in trouble here and i broke it down into days and as i was doing that it, man it's not important how much i enjoyed it it's for the reader I was was like, I was like, God, yeah, I'm back in it now. I was like Carrick when Carrick was back in Moscow on the podcast. I was back in the tournaments when I wrote them, and that that was just. Even now, I'm beaming, remembering the madness of of being a first hand witness through those tournaments. It's just, it's just been, and it's been a joy about what journalism's supposed to be like. Not just yeah, watching football, being well. It's what I think our profession's supposed to do. Uh, I mean, I think the 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 further
3: we get away from the the, the Spain the glorious kind of Spain treble era, I think the more it'll be appreciated. Um, I mean, I think um, and the the last tournament victory, I remember tuning into the radio and um, in fact said said Law, who we're meeting later today, um, he was on kind of arguing Spain's case. He was saying, "Oh, you know the." Uh, um, People are saying they're, they're plodding and pedestrian, and you know this this pass, pass, pass style. But um, this is what they're trying to do. And he was trying to explain, you know, how this this incredible team, uh, who who the world have, have been watching for for six, eight years, and have set up to to destroy, uh, they're trying to think their way around this problem. So it was it was plainly obvious what the problems that it's been faced and how they were trying to overcome them, but. Like Sid was almost trying to educate people and say, "Look, calm down. This is a, that was amazing." And Spain obviously go on to win the tournament. You know, and I just thought f- for the
1: team that won in the final, yeah, oh, no. yeah. Which exactly. and, and that was that was a beautiful display, wasn't it? Yeah, like exactly. You've, 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 at one point in you've sparked game. me off again because that, I haven't said this often so enough, and I'll make it tight now That both that Barcelona and that Spain here is populated of you know tiny footballers. Yeah. In an era where um, the, the the build them high, run fast thing couldn't cope, and that been and Barcelona era is filled with players who aren't particularly quick. Yeah, Martin said it better. <laughs> Technique and intelligence and the ability to pass the ball meant that all oh, you little, all oh, you giants, all oh, you Goliaths can run around, and David's got a stone in his catapult. Yeah, do for me. Did you,
0: Martin, find that, having written before, and I mean, you've written football books, uh, mm-hmm. like you mentioned the greats, the, the Maradona's, the Pele's, the Messi's, the Shinsuke Nakamura's. I mean, <laughs> you're yeah. a close. Little Wrong little word, resources. but the right group. Is that, is that, I'm <laughs> speaking for you there. At yeah. Naka first, second.
1: Yeah, it'd definitely. Be, yeah. It'd be uh, top three for In sure. the conversation. for <laughs> <with your>, sure. <laughs> That's the question of the day. You, Listeners, <laughs> Gav's got a question of the day. Though. But
0: did you find that, having having written yourself, that it, it made it easier as a publisher, like, you know, Graham was saying there about how like he was a little bit worried about handing it over without putting in the breaking it into days and stuff. But you probably have a slightly different perspective when it comes to a football book as to how to deal with it, how to edit it or how to look at it.
3: I think it gives you empathy for for the writer, which is a, a huge thing. I mean writing a book is a brutally hard experience. A lot of people have ideas for books, a lot of people write four chapters the right you know 90% of it but actually to go over the finishing line and do a job that you're proud of is an incredibly difficult um, experience Um, I mean the first book that I wrote uh, I remember getting the word count of like 80,000 words and I just thought "That's, that's inconceivable that you could get to that and um, it was such a pressure, it felt like the image I had in my head was like, I'm sure my age here, but remember the old Blue Peter Appeal and you used to, you know, it'd get to like £10,000 and then £20,000 and you see the lights go up and that's what it felt like for, in terms of achieving that word count. It felt like, right, I've done another 3000 so the Blue Peter Appeal has moved up slightly, you know, and you're trying to get to the top. It was just absolutely brutal. So I think that really did help because... I mean, you've said yourself, um, you know, particularly the Barca, but it was a pretty brutal experience, mm. the, the writing of it. Yeah, I, I didn't enjoy it at all.
1: enjoyed, you know, I loved. No, I've said it, yeah. I mean, it was, I found it hard. It was against my discipline, and, you know, it's also hard to introduce discipline. And I'll tell you another thing that backs up what Martin was saying. I wasn't fearful of failure, but without in any way trying to pretend I'm their chum, I felt I had to represent both the Barcelona players and Spain players who I liked. And I would have treated it the same if I was writing about Real Madrid or Juventus or Aberdeen. I knew these... In fact, let's take the club thing out of it. I knew these men, I respected them, and I didn't want to let their story down. So I felt a bit of responsibility there. That weighed on me a little bit. Not, will this sell or will Neil and Martin accept this draft? Or If this is published, I don't want to be that jerk who just... Surf the wave of their success and turned out some old pish. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, like the when the when does the podcast podcast come into the reckoning? Then, like, I mean, it, it, this is an idea that you develop, Martin, having yeah. already worked with Graham on the books, or was it an idea you might have had before that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, probably from right about. 2013 onwards, myself and Neil were listening to a lot of podcasts, primarily non-sport, so, and primarily US-based podcasts, so stuff like um, Tim Ferriss, Mark Marin uh, Nerdist, Alec Baldwin, um, even like Desert Island Discs, um, but the format of those uh, podcasts are kind of long-form interviews, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I, I just love that sort of stuff, I couldn't get enough of it. Um, so I always had this idea of it would be great to do something like that, Um and then we thought, well, um, the the kind of football podcast market is not catered for in that way. There's a lot of journalists and pundits sitting around a table chatting, and some of them are really good. Uh, and I listened to some of them, but uh, I just thought how brilliant would it be if we could get um, one-to-one interviews where you spend 45 minutes an hour with somebody and you really get into the, the bones of their career and their life uh, and give them a chance to speak in a way that they've, they've never had before. Um, so that that was that was kind of the basis of the idea, and then we spoke to Graham about it, and, and he was like, "Yeah, let's do one." So we did. We thought we'd just do it as an experiment. There was no great um, grand plan to the whole thing, um, like so much of what we do. Um, <laughs> but we Graham was coming over to London every week to do Revista at De La Liga at that point, so it made sense for us to meet him down in London, and and. Preferably do somebody that was in the same building as Graham that day. <laughs> so you can see where this is leading. Uh step up Gary Neville. Um the first podcast was Gary Neville, himself and Neil went down and um Gary was preparing for Monday night football. Um, pretty stressed out. Um you'd briefed them, but he Completely forgotten, hadn't gone in, really had it. Uh, let's hang him out to dry. You can t- pick up the story from so here. he like.
1: sitting in, the, in, the, in the, it's a big, the editorial rooms, in, in sky are big, long sort of word factories and desks everywhere, and you can see everybody across the floor. And so, well, like Gary knew they were here, and he was he was good for his word that he was going to do it, but he was yeah. like, well, so i like Gary, will you remember? He said, he said, yeah, yeah. He said, what is he? Just like it's a five minute thing, in it five minute. I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about, man? You absolutely talking about it. So I'm like, what do I do, shout across the floor? No, fuck's no. sake. <laughs> I was like, uh, we'll, we'll just talk over. it. So we, 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 we go and do it, and we get him into the room. And there's, there's nerves, because it's our first one. We want this to succeed. I like and respect him, so I didn't want to make him go, Listen, come on, you've sold me something. So I'm sitting there in, in, in quite a sort of mess of uh, teenage emotion. And um, we, we, I, we, we'd planned some of the things we wanted to talk about, but I just had it in my head. And maybe the, either this is self-indulgence or it's typical of the luck that I've carried right through my career. I adore cricket. I always have done. You know, I grew up watching early 70s cricket was was the thing that outside Aberdeen Football Club was the thing that I most enjoyed. And Richie Beno was you know central to everything that we've been talking about here. Can you describe something well? Can you lift it up? Can you become almost embedded in the quality of the viewing experience? and he'd just died and I knew vaguely that Gary and Phil had, had played cricket well and their mm. dad was a good cricketer mm. and just, just I'll tell you what before we start Gary can we talk about and I, I think he was it, I, in I from thought, that
3: moment I think right? it changed the tone and the pace of the conversation that Neville expected to have you could see him slightly doing a double take like oh this is going to be slightly different from the stuff that I usually do. Um, But what what we did with that interview was we wanted to get like Neville the pundit and for him to dissect what he did. So we didn't want to do a walkthrough of his entire career. This was like we tried to be as focused and kind of thematic as possible with that interview and, and we found, I mean it's kind of hostile for courses, but if you can find a subject where you can be very self contained and get the person really forensically looking at that subject then it can be amazing. Um, so obviously we started getting into that um, with Gary and it just, I mean it was just incredible, 47 minutes His ability just, to analyse himself
1: uh, and it, what he attempts to do and where he succeeds, where he fails, where his future goals were in terms of, as, just as far down as breaking down the language that he uses and how much he thinks about it. And when you meet anybody that knows him before you have a first-hand experience of him, well, they, they'll They'll tell you things about unbelievable work ethic, intensity, how many hours he packs into the day. But what people, I thought, we now all think subsequently, what they really talk about is the ferocity of his intelligence. So I'm not saying Mensa or University Challenge. What I'm saying is somebody who ferociously attacks every single thing in his life to do it to the absolute best of his ability. And there's no point in lying on this podcast amongst friends people don't do that in life you know anybody who says out there that they do is lying you know it's f- point 0.5 of the population that that go i will i will dedicate myself every waking hour to be the absolute very best i can be i don't and and i think that literally i think it's probably one in 10 million and therefore what you get when you listen to him on a monday night is whether whether he gets everything right or not is not the question whether you agree with everything he says or not is not the question he's elite you know, he's doing Leo Messi level football analysis better than anybody I've ever heard in my life before.
3: But, but I think people hadn't heard him speak like that before uh, and, and dissect that subject so well. Um, so we, we, we put out the podcast probably a week or two later, not with any huge expectations, but... Um, that's
0: it's interesting. Like even though you knew it had gone well, yeah. you're not necessarily expecting it to blow up
3: to the extent it did. No, we weren't experienced in that space at all, so we just thought we'll put it out, and see what happens, and um, you know, we we um, we were stunned. Uh, I, I remember the the um, the hit count going up and up and up, and then we we st- we started climbing the iTunes charts and. By like two o'clock in the afternoon, it was like number one in the iTunes charts, and and we were like um, a bit freaked out by this, to be honest. I mean, it's funny when you you don't really um, have expectations. suddenly you don't feel buzzed, you feel like it's a burden, you're like, oh my God, what have we done here? You know, this is this is going to throw us into something, an area that we're, we're not prepared for at all, so um we're kind of looking at each other slightly uh, terrified, Um but yeah, it stayed at number one, and then we're getting inundated in social media, people are saying, well, like, when's the next one, that was brilliant. Um I think Gary was getting inundated in social media as well, because he later said he, to he you that he was... He
1: didn't know what, what no. had happened. So what, he,
3: what, yeah. what did he say?
0: Like, is in that
1: he, he, he was knocked out about the, the the numbers of people that that either contacted him or spoke about him on Twitter and what they said. He was he was genuinely, really, really surprised, and I think it led to. I think he does a podcast now for Sky. I think it was a catalyst to him going, well, I, I must mm. do this, yeah. and, and so he should too.
2: Sorry. Have you got like much reaction over like I remember one of the earlier ones you were speaking to Gordon Strachan. and I remember mm. kind of listening to this and and like I know he'd be one of your heroes. We were talking specifically at this point about like the dribbling footballer and you know how that's gone away and he's there giving like full analysis as to why that's not as good, why football isn't as good as it used to be in certain ways and he is the Scotland manager mm. at the time and he's talking about the Scottish football and the predicaments in both good and bad and it's like. He's really honestly giving this assessment to you, but like he's doing it in an intelligent way. It's an intelligent conversation. Nobody listening to it is going to sensationalise or take out anything he's saying and saying Strachan attacks Scottish youth system or anything like that. Like when they do these long form interviews, have you found I don't know that that there's more of a sense when people do these interviews with you that there's it's okay to talk about football. You don't always have to be closed yeah. up and. You know towed a to party line with everything i don't know like the more of them you do has it been easier to get
1: you must i think you work? must have the experience the amount of times you've booked guests or broadcasters or produced something you know the answer to this that it's a jigsaw i think that first of all you know neil and, and martin and, and i sit down and, and think a little bit about who it is we want to get on and we set a concept which is nobody that we that we don't respect don't want somebody who'd be a big name who'd be a must and you know that's like glenn Hoddle. we were asked constantly for Glenn Hoddle. I don't respect him, so I'm not going to talk to him. And therefore, if you if you do the old, what's the old Charlotte Holmes thing, if you remove the, you know, the unfeasible, the improbable, or you're left with the deaf, whatever it is. And there So we we don't speak to chums all the time, because sometimes I, it'll be a first conversation with the person. So there's no sycophancy. anybody who thinks that about the style is wrong. But what you are speaking to initially is somebody who's... Who you respect and you want to hear from them. So, secondly, and I, I'm not like Gary. I can't analyse this, and I'm constantly waiting to, to, to trip up and fall over. But apart from the apart from the pre planning we do about what would be a good subject for this, what would be not just what would be good milestone issues? Can we make it like for mm. a, a ch- cheap example? Is Paul Clement? Yeah. Can you talk us through being a coach on the day of the Champions League final? So there's a theme. What I try to do in, in the way I express myself during the chat is just to be curious. I, mm. I, I, it's not like I'm only satisfying myself, but I ask the things that I'm curious about, not necessarily things that modern football journalism says you should ask about. And you're right, obviously, I've got a passion for asking about football. And many of the people that we ask on want to speak about their sport and are a little bit surprised at being able to speak about their sport. And they feel proud. And also, you're putting them on home territory. You know, if you ask a footballer... Um, do you dislike that person or did you think that result of your opponent team was... And you're like, they're like, well, what are they going to do? They're going to box clever and that will end up being boring. Say to them, can you explain what you've spent every waking hour for the last 20 years trying to do well and where you failed or where you could do better or what you admire or who else you... They're on ground that they're articulate about. I, think. I mean,
3: I, I think the pre-planning thing is huge. I mean, we do like hours and hours and hours for every interview. And um, in fact, one of our uh, former journalism colleagues um, once said that, well, you know, you're basically just doing what journal- journalists do. You're just sitting chatting to somebody. But like, I, I, I disagree with that. Like, I, I think the reason why we can hopefully mine such good material out of people is because we do so much planning, but we talk so much. Like I think as part of the relationship between the three of us. Um, we sit and talk and talk and talk and talk after having done this huge amount of research and then suddenly it will click that and we'll go true. bang, that's it. And that's as you true. talk about the Paul Clement thing, but I remember actually talking about like where we were going to go with him and then we had this idea for, um, you know, the day of a Champions League final mm-hmm. and break down the day. Mm-hmm. And I actually remember where we were. We were I think we were, we were on a plane because we did that crazy trip from three in three days, didn't we? And um, and we both looked at each other and we're like, yeah, that's it. That That's the one that's going to that's gonna get him because he's a details guy, Paul. You know, he wants to get into the um, the minutiae of things. Um, and once we got that, it was like, bang, right, let's go. So, but I think that came from, you know, just kind of working the subject and trying to find an area that people will
1: just, you know, that will feed right into their,
3: their strengths, basically.
1: Martin said it right, and I, I draw inspiration from the people that I listen to and watch. So there's one time when Pep wins the Catalan gold medal, you know, just for being Pep, and he stands up at the in the parliament, and he does this really long speech, but it's, it's emotive and it's unusual, because he's on subjects where... Well, actually, what it felt to me in the day, because you could get journalistic access... It felt like being what it must feel like being in the dressing room because you're hearing him. Okay, not pre-planning a game and talking to, you know, 18 people, but all the same. And there's one phrase that we've published where he said, you know, I, I sit down, I lock myself in the dungeon in the camp now. i get got all the tapes, the little cuts and the stuff that my analysis team has given me. I sit down and I'll disappear in there. for. It's a bare room, a desk, a seat, a picture of his family and, and the material. And he said, I go over it, and I go over it, and I go over it, and then a light bulb goes on over my head. And, and Martin's right to reproduce that because it's now it's a mutual thing. But given that ultimately I've got to sit down and not make an arse of the thing, that when we've talked to it sufficiently and I go, maybe it could even be as simple as being in a comfort zone. Yeah, I'm happy to ask that things, yeah. which sort of demystifies it a little bit. <laughs> if you're comfortable asking, you're maybe going to sound more convincing. But often what will happen is, I'll go, yeah, I I know where I'll go from that. I know what we might get. I know what I want to know. And it's like Christmas, man. You know, when you're in the middle of a good interview like that, it's literally, you feel like it's, you know, you're just, you're you're, you're flying. It's brilliant. The Damien Duff one was
0: one over here, which seemed Mm. to enthrall people. Because we know Duff as, obviously, at least early on his career, was he was a footballing sensation and an international legend, but was a quiet boy, like often described as like uh, almost like a student, just unassuming and just kept to himself. But then you got some great stories out of him, and you also, I think, showed Irish football fans at least a side to Duff that we'd probably been looking for for years that we hadn't seen before. How 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 did you find him?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't think you had you had a previous. Um, no, we never met. Relationship no. No, with no. with Damien, um, we we were coming over to do um, an event, and we were talking about who we could possibly get in Dublin, and obviously Damien's name was was, was kind of top of the list. So um, we contacted him uh, through his, his manager, his agent, I think, and um, and his agent came straight back and said, "Yeah, yeah, he's he's up for it." And it's quite interesting actually because when when we met him that day. Um, he said he kind of talked us through that conversation he'd had with his agent and I don't think he does many interviews um, I know he he'd he done a great one with uh, Ken Early and mm-hmm. the second captains mm-hmm. uh, which I think they had in, in their annual which was which we pulled over before the interview um, but yeah he, he he basically said when he got the email through from his agent and he saw that it was Graeme Hunter and he's like oh Graham Hunter Revista I'm going to do it and, and he was totally buzzed by that and like um, I'm not blowing smoke up yeah, you know, I'll see it, but it's. I think there is something about Spanish football that that British footballers really hold in high esteem. You know, they, they this is something that keeps coming up again and again, isn't it? You know, Jody Moore, all these guys are like, oh, they 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 love um, Spanish football. Um, they love hearing stories about it. Any glimpses they can get behind the scenes. So you know that that generation will have grown up like watching. Revista de Liga, so there was an a, immediate kind
1: of recognition factor there, which I thought was really interesting. From my point of view it's still it's still nuts every single interview you go into think well there's a fair chance the guy's going to call you out here for being you know, an idiot or having a croaky voice or being an imposter or having big ears or whatever it is and you get you know, this fantastic footballer, fantastic entertaining footballer, who I don't know, and when we meet him it's as if, for each of us it's as if we've known each other for 20 years. And what's more, you instantly see that he loves football. You instantly see that he's funny, that he's articulate. And also that you instantly see that he's willing to be open. So, that, I mean, a little story about, um, to, you know, if you think of it, the causal connection. I, 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 if I see a football, you know, I, I can't not go to it. You want to touch it, you want to pick it up, you want to knock it around the walls here in your little sort of sauna cabin, is it? <laughs> get, get the twigs out, get the twigs out. Like it. It. Yeah. I don't, I don't even we don't snob. have the language. Since, right? um, so, <laughs> <laughs> even in Swedish. So, you, 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 I go like, um, now you're not playing, um, do, do you miss, not football, but the football, do you miss the football? Do, do you need to, and he, he just told me and said, and for those who listen to the podcast, I'm sorry to repeat it, but he's like, I go and hire an AstroTurf pitch around the corner for myself over a Tuesday morning, just so mm. I can go out. And, and you're like, e- fuck, exactly right. That's, if, if I was an ex-footballer with a lot of money in the bank, that's exactly what I would do. I wouldn't be working. I'd be yeah. out with a football somewhere or coaching or trying to kick it into my neighbour's bedroom window or something. I wonder if I could get that up and in there. He was just like it. us. He, he's, you know? still, he's, still, he's still working in his right foot, and he's like, Why am I doing this? Like, I'm retired. Like, you know, it's like.
3: <laughs> but, uh, so, it's take brilliant. away the
1: fact that he's a successful international footballer. So, you yeah. met this boy in the pub, or have you met him sitting next to him on a flight? You'd speak to him because yeah. he's absolutely brilliant. He feels the same as you. And it's it's one of the things the big interview does is, although I go into it, not nervous, but, but waiting to see when life will sort of kick you in the teeth. What it does is it takes the gap away between we're sitting with multi-millionaires, people we sometimes see the inside of their lives, in our houses, and fuck me, it's just you know it's it's beyond a universe that we can't understand. Yet there is no barrier. We we are them and they are us when we start talking about football, and I find maybe some of that transmits, but that it's just like they they're like us just happens to be that they're in a profession where people you know get, get big sort of funnels of money and pour it on their heads yeah and, and when they start talking about football they're just like the kids that we were yeah. i Did think do
2: you have a favorite interview something? Ah, it's,
1: it's a meryl street moment isn't it? isn't it meryl street what's that um well meryl street having a pop at trump that was one of my favorite moments <laughs> of all time yeah what's that Fleming I mean, sophie's choice thing you got to choose between your children, don't Michael. Don't do that to me after all these. I'll years. choose it, Martin. Want. Yeah, <laughs> Martin <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was the one I didn't do the interview in. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, I still, I still, um, you know, I've, I've listened back to the, the Gary Neville one a few times and I think that's fantastic. Um, love that. And um, just as a total kind of change of pace, the Kevin Bridges one is yeah. brilliant, mm. um, because that was just a completely different type of football conversation and it's really funny, it's just so funny, Like we, we recorded it in the, the kind of boardroom of the office um, that, that, that we share with another company and um, you, you can actually, if you listen closely, you can hear me and Neil just like killing ourselves laughing in the background and um, he, he's like a, a real obsessive um, and I think it's, you've got to be a bit careful, I think, when you go out of um, the kind of football world, if you like, you know, you know in terms of guests, um They really have to have quite a deep knowledge uh, and a real passion it's not enough to be a kind of fair weather fan i think if you're going to do a 45 you know 60 minute interview you've got to be able to go deep and He he, he's totally obsessed. Mm. eh? I mean, he he was he was saying he was saying stuff to you like, oh, you know, I don't know why why did they drop all for the thirteenth game in that season? I was really outraged at that. And you're like, well, I'm not not sure. Kevin like completely (laughs) like obsessed with Spanish football. Grew up watching it, um, and a a brilliant knowledge. Um, So I think he brought all that to it. And I, and I think that, that was that was amazing. There's another
1: side to that point, and because I could answer your question in another way and say so I could easily pinpoint favourite experiences or favourite mm. moments. But there are other things in that, it's, like, it's not public service, but both Martin and Neil regularly say to either the, the guest or the potential guest or their agent or the press officer for the club, you're going to find that this is just about the best public profile feeling that you'll get this year or next year or maybe in your career because people are going to say I've seen the real you Mm. you're fantastic you'll get feedback and and almost without exception not only do they feel that they'll come and say to us in one way or another what was that wave of love God that was good so if you take that it's something special in an interview can happen and Kevin and I had been friends for a few years before we did it but because again sort of be repetitive because a friend I was a little bit worried about how he'd feel about the process and how he'd come out of it. And also, would we say things? Because we do things that are sort of potentially newsworthy in a (laughs) bad way. And I hope that he wouldn't... And what shone out was two things that I knew about him before, and and it, it just emanated from him. One, a lot of people who work in comedy aren't necessarily funny away from the craft of the stage. And Kevin is a million times funnier. in person or if you're knocking around with him even than he is on stage and that came out he's I mean he's unbelievable in raconteur managing subjects and the second thing that I thought Sean out which again I knew is that he's really really bright you know he's a really bright curious in terms of being curious about things open-minded guy whose first instinct when he got famous was I've always wanted to go and explore South America, understand South American football go and live there and learn Spanish while i'm at it and it's you're like i I don't believe in the people we've met that that's always the first thing you do when you're rich and famous. Usually you're like, oh, I'll have hedonism or I'll buy certain things for myself or he's like I want to discover and I thought that came out in the in the podcast really well, and it's a it feels like a privilege to 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 help the person who's got slightly different footballers now I'm talking about not Kevin mm. image I mean I I don't know who it applies to but for example I, a lot of Celtic fans sort of went, mm, I quite enjoyed listening to Terry Butcher <laughs> and and you know Graham Soonis as well Soonis too true mm. absolutely true. and then they'll tell you things like Soonis's you know brilliant relationship and adoration for Jock Steen, which I don't think was known at all and so there are moments and and also we all, all three of us, really adore to laugh or to be funny or whatever. And footballers, football life and footballers are so funny. I mean, really knockout funny. And the anecdotes and I, I, none of the laughter is, is forced off fake. Frank McAvenney, you know, I'm off the chair, falling off the chair. Charlie Nick, also very funny. Harry Redknapp, just unbelievably funny. And, and often they, they, they've turned out to be witty people too. and also weird things happen where you're like, you know, Chris Waddle is the second most expensive footballer of all time and Marseille sign him and there's a hullabaloo when he signs the papers where he comes back to training there's nobody at the airport except for these French journalists who rush over to them because they think he's Dave Gilmore of Pink Floyd <laughs> you know, like, how does that happen? And, and they just toss these anecdotes away and you're like, okay, there's another one that's a good one
0: well, you've set the bar pretty high, boys, but we, yeah. <laughs> we better let you go. We've kept you here long enough. Yeah. It's uh, It's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, best of luck with, uh, with the podcast and everything else. And you. More, more and books. You. Thanks for having us.